I think that people going into restaurants and cafes should say, as I say if I go to a fruit shop, where did that fruit come from? Where was it grown? I'm not buying it. I'm not going to buy that lemon from California. I really want to buy local and I want to buy fresh. Rosemary Morrow, known to all as Roe, is a teacher of permaculture, regeneration and systems design. She has 40 years experience around the world working to restore social and environmental health from all over Australia to Cambodia, Portugal, the Solomon Islands and across Africa. She lives in the Blue Mountains on Darug and Gundungara country and has a new book out called Earth Restorer's Guide. This is something a little bit different for us on Dirty Linen, but Ro, I am so thrilled to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and I think it's just wonderful that to be interviewed by you as well. I think it's a great compliment and thanks so much. Oh, well, (laughs) I'm blushing in audio. Um, Ro, look, it's easy for people in cities and perhaps especially in restaurants, which is a big part of our audience here, to feel disconnected from nature, which is sort of strange because at the same time, all of us, and again, perhaps especially food people, are deeply bound up in nature. How has it come to this? I think it's come to this, I mean, it's a it's a word we use a lot, but we've become increasingly alienated. That sounds as if it's our choice. Actually, it's not our choice. By the time you're living in air-conditioned buildings, air-conditioned cars, travelling through cities that are all asphalt and concrete, listening to radio, plugs in our ears, we're effectively losing any contact with the natural world and with that we lose what I call our literacy, our ability to love it and interact with it and also value it. Yeah, that's so interesting because I often am walking, I love listening to birds, but I also love listening to podcasts. So I often, when I'm when I'm out walking or jogging, um, I often, yeah, do feel that conflict really keenly. And I suppose I feel like I've got to make the most of every minute. There's something in being busy, I think, that, um, that, that uh, is tied up in this alienation that you speak about. Yes, I think it is. I think something like becoming familiar with your environment gets sacrificed for writing that extra email or speaking to that person or listening to that piece of music or podcast someone told you to. And each time we do it, we're creating the gap between us and everything that supports us, you know, from the oceans, the climates, to the local backyard. And I think that's what's happening. And it's been unconscious and it's been a drive of an industrial world. And what do you think are, are some of the implications for this in, in how we live and relate to one another and our environment? I, th- I think there's there's a social level at which we don't value it because I th- if you are engaged in the world, you don't hear a chainsaw without rushing out the door to see what they're doing and go and protest about another some animal's house is being lost. It's really like an eviction. Um, so I think that's one score. The other score is we've lost sheer delight and wonder. And if delight and wonder is going out of people's lives, part of that is because the wonder was always and continues where people live close to nature to be engaged in the miracle of life, of the synchronicity, of the contradictions, of the brutality. If it's a choice between watching the news at night or going out and listening and watching the birds go to sleep, the birds are far more interesting and entrancing than actually the newsreader. 
I hope you're not a newsreader. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a journalist. I don't know. I mean, but isn't it important to be engaged with the news, which after all is, you know, the stuff that's going on in our world, in, you know, including the birds, you know, or, you know, the environment at least. I mean, how do you, how do you balance out those tugs on us? Yeah, I think that's that's something really interesting to think about. I've had to wrestle with that myself because I'm naturally interested in everything. In fact, you know, people used to say there's no show without punch. Anything happening in my nose would appear over the fence like what's happening here. So now I think what is adding to my quality of life and what do I need to know about and do I need to know more about it? But I don't think we ask those questions in society. Do I need to know? Do I need to know more? Um, and how does it add to my... I've just repeated them again because I'm thinking through the truth of those statements. I think I put things through that lens, not consciously, but more and more I say, I don't need to know that or I'm not in denial about the power of corporations to destroy the environment, but I don't need to know the small details of this, but I will act if I have to. Wow. Okay. I feel like give us a bit of context about yourself, Ro. You know, tell us more about yourself and about your work. Okay. So I come from immense unbelievable privilege, a very secure family home in Perth, growing up as a child, running free in the sand dunes, swimming in the Perth River, um, just incredible with gangs of kids, which was wonderful. You know, someone always carrying the two-year-old on their shoulder. Today they'd say, what's that little girl doing carrying that baby? (laughs) You know, report you. (laughs) However, I'd get into how things have changed. And then to Sydney, for a few years and when I was 15 I went to live in the Kimberleys. I ran away from home. I lived on a million acre cattle station for five years then I came back to university and sat a full HSC and went to uni and I did agriculture. But along the way, every environment was impressing me. So, you know, around Sydney we lived at Neutral Bay around the harbour and we could run on those paths. I'll tell you at 10 years old the ferry driver on the Sydney ferries let me drive from Neutral Bay to Circular Quay and then run downstairs and jump on the rail and onto the wharf. Now, <laughs> not sure but I think those things build you and help you and the experiences that you go through there as big and varied as they are are very, very enabling. So I think there was this love, but then the rest of the time I was wrapped up in a book, so it wasn't just a physical life. And then once I'd got through uni, I knew I wanted to be in developing countries, and that became, after a little bit of research, that became my career. But it was desperately unsatisfying, desperately unsatisfying to agricultural science and then think you're going somewhere maybe to make a difference, support, you know, push a door open on a different way of doing things. It really wasn't any good at all. So it's when I found permaculture that things came alive because I'd been looking for an integrated approach. I'd been looking at where I could consider several variables at once and understand risk, and that really wasn't in it. So, I mean, what is permaculture? Yeah, well, look, I usually take a class through and then get them to write their definition at the end. <laughs> it, 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 it's really like um, a, 
Wikipedia, the 30 or more sorts of subjects that you bind together in a literacy that enables you to look at the environment and know where to intervene for reparation, repairing and restoration and and increase abundance and productivity so we can live well. For example, we know a bit about climate, a bit about microclimate, topography, soils, water, ecosystems. <laughs> I mean, the list is huge. You wonder how you can do it. It is extremely amazing the way it fits together. Otherwise, I would have left it years ago. I'm always looking for something that is a solution and is restorative. So basically... It is, you think of it as a sewing box rather than a toolbox. Let's use a softer metaphor. Instead of hammers and chisels, let's think of needles and thread. A sewing box of things you can use to repair the earth, but it's all in your head and mind. It opens your eyes so you could look at anything from a city to a farm, townscape, to a balcony and say, this can be made more abundant, cleaner and less consuming. So we use the word design to do that. We put together the right groups of knowledge. I would say permaculture is ecological literacy that allows you to restore effectively landscapes and societies. You know, other people say it's a system for living in human settlements, but they're all abstract words and it's very difficult to bring it into a concrete. For example, where do you live? Uh, I'm in St Kilda in Melbourne. Oh, so you're in an apartment or a house? I'm in a house. Okay, so you'd be able to look at that and think, right, I can get more sun in here and this will be better during the day and that will use less energy. This will give me better ventilation and airflow. I can do this in the yard. I can do that on the fence and I can suddenly be living in my own little urban farm. So the, the skills you get, for me, are a very good way of describing permaculture. Mm, okay. What you're able to do. So we started talking about loss of ecological literacy, loss of understanding, loss of awe and wonder, and then we're able to go through a process and be able to put that back. And within, it, within that, your respect and your awe and wonder grows again. So... I mean, yeah, most of the audience of this podcast would be in cities. A lot of the people, you know, they either love eating in restaurants or they're working in restaurants. They're, like me, obsessed with, with food and the way that we eat. What kinds of sort of mindset or ethics or choices would you say that um, people that are engaged with the hospitality sector could, could bring from, you know, this permaculture perspective? I think because they're handling food all the time, it gives them a particular interest and a particular connection. So whether they go to the market and pick out their own beetroot, tomatoes, whatever products, I think that makes a huge difference. They're actually looking at a food before it gets eaten. So those people who are making the choices, the restaurateurs, the cafe owners, cafe owners, they have a vast knowledge of food. I remember at one stage saying to someone, how many tomatoes do you know? Now, the ordinary maybe restaurant visitor might know, but that person knew juicing tomatoes, drying tomatoes, salad tomatoes, sauce tomatoes. They weren't growing them, but they had that awareness I'm starting here with the person who buys the food and prepares the food because you can go one step back and say, what if 
they were going straight to the garden instead of the markets? What if they were looking at the effect of the rain or the drought or the sun and they were looking at and in contact with the people who are growing that food, you would get that deeper and deeper connection that they're going to want to tell their customer. We got the first something. We have got the last of something. We made this jam ourselves. We made this sauce. We got these tomatoes. I think that that is again, the loss of that is again loss of connection. And I think they used to do it. And I have certainly been into, into lots and lots of restaurants where they also have their gardens. Um, so for restaurants, I think that people in going into restaurants and cafes should say, as I say if I go to a fruit shop, where did that fruit come from? Where was it grown? I'm not buying it. I'm not going to buy that lemon from California. I really want to buy local and I want to buy fresh. And I think we need the restaurateurs doing that. And we need the consumers, the, the gourmets, the gourmands being able to say to a restaurant, where did you get this? What season? Do you know where it was sourced? We're certainly starting to do it with our clothes. Was it fair trade? Where did you get it? Where did the timber come from? Why aren't we asking about the food and why isn't there a little story about it when someone's gone to all that trouble to prepare it? What do you think are some of the benefits of being more in touch with where food comes from? Well, it's this old thing. We have a bit of a delight in knowing. It's lovely to then finish your meal and instead of wipe your face and and walk out and say, that was delicious, say, oh, my goodness, I had no idea that round the corner in the backyard someone is growing all these gorgeous peas and they've got five varieties. It's more interesting than the weather and it's more interesting than politics. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things, you know, your book is 500 pages, so I'm going to confess that I haven't read every page. <laughs> but one of the things... <laughs> one I of haven't the th- either. <laughs> one of not, the th- not since it's printed. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> one of the threads I think that really stood out for me is this idea of community and, and networks and you know the the riches that can come from those. Do you think mm. that there are communities that restaurant people might not even realize they're part of? Are we talking about the people who visit restaurants or the restaurateurs themselves? Well, either I suppose. Oh, look, you're absolutely right. There's a whole world of people with common interest and disconnected. And I learned it years ago working for the Sydney Green Space Program. And we found that when we created open space, people flooded in. But they weren't an organised lobby like the people who wanted a new cricket ground. So what you had was the lobby groups were seen and heard, but there were these other interests and sometimes by making the opportunities available and making sort of information available or bringing groups together with special interests, I think you can create those. Those communities could easily meet around food and I'm sure they're there. In fact, we know there are vegans, we know there are vegos, we know there are crudivores, we know there are those who are piscators and will eat fish. We know they all exist and they have common interests and within that I think they'd like to deepen it. Mm. That is so interesting because you know what it makes me think of, Roy, is on this podcast we had a focus for a couple of weeks on sardines and a net fishing ban in Port Phillip Bay, so the bay that Melbourne hugs. And 
the reason for this ban was that the recreational fishers have an organised lobby and they lobbied the government so that they could get more resources and access to the bay for themselves. And what that meant was that the commercial fishers who were harvesting, even though they were harvesting sardines sustainably and it was there was no environmental degradation that was going on because of their businesses, but because they were supplying to the general public – um, who are not an organised lobby group. There's no, you know, sardine fishers are us, um, you know, so, sorry, sardine eaters are us, bumper stickers or anything like that, whereas there are definitely, you know, I fish, I shoot, I vote stickers. Um, because there was not this organised group around this idea of eating this particular seafood, that, yeah, it just was able to be... Um, winkled away and this access was lost so it's yeah people didn't people don't know that they're part of a community of of eaters yes i think you're absolutely right and it is the lobby group that's heard you know the squeaking door gets the oil but there are others that have huge interests and common interests that they don't know about it may be in preserving old varieties of apples might be the things they ate as kids that were in every backyard that have disappeared because we've only got, you know, Royal Gala or something. And that lobby, I think it would be interesting. We are getting more and more of those sorts of lobbies arriving these days. But about the sardines, it, it for me it seems really a, a bit sad that they were not able to work together on this and come to a reasonable situation for both groups because you know recreation's one thing service for the community is another and they should be able to come together they've got both got good goals or objectives but they're not pulling them together mm, yeah well that's absolutely right and it was very a very frustrating issue to dig into um what are some of the ways that we could think about creating, fostering, nurturing changes that we want to see? I think it's in our conversations. I think we could switch from, isn't it terrible about the war in Ukraine that we can't do anything about, to what we need to be doing here to make our own our own quality of life and interactions better. And I think some of that's physical in transforming landscapes, particularly urban landscapes, but there's also you know, a whole world which is really, really increasingly ugly. And I think that affects our sort of spirit as well. To look on beauty is is pretty important. And so much of what we're talking about has been lost as beauty as well. So I would like to see the sorts of transformations happen that enable people to be part of it. Everyone knows about community gardens, but they don't know there are 6,000 balcony gardens in Barcelona. And those 6,000 gardeners all on terraces and balconies are producing a considerable amount of food for themselves and others locally. And they have just simply got themselves a blog or a website or something and they all discuss balcony gardening. And I think that is fabulous. Yeah. So what else could you see happening in Australian cities and towns that would be uh, yeah, positive in this regard? Well, I mean, there's all the stuff that people are dealing with that getting more passive solar and using less energy or using energy many times so it, it actually has some value. But the sorts of things I can see happening, some of the things are happening in Singapore, 
So Singapore has connected the tops of buildings with the same height and you can walk or cycle or have trees and plants growing across the tops of buildings. You know, you just bring it in. You could make it so that maybe in Australia, north side of buildings, all the way down has a skin on and that's a glass house and it grows lots of gorgeous things. We could take brick buildings and warehouses and again put like a French cafe out the front where you take a glass house and that becomes a living area. We, instead of parking areas, we could keep water in buildings and collect it from the roof and provide for the needs of the building. We could have markets, we could have uh, fairs, we could have worm farms, can have op shops. A whole building could be looked at as a neighbourhood standing up instead of lying down along the ground and then look at how it meets needs and functions and creates a sense of community there. I think the 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 options are almost limitless and they open up more every day to transform our cities. And do you feel, I mean, yeah, as you talk about the um, opportunities in buildings, it does make me think about this particular, you know, pandemic period where there are so many vacancies. It does feel like a time that's um, potentially quite ripe for change. I mean, do, do you see this as a time of opportunity? Oh, I think every moment's a moment for opportunity, but in terms of buildings and empty buildings, I think this is a fabulous time to rethink what we're doing. I think whether it's co-working, so a group of people who have been working at home can work together as a community, even in different fields, because the computer holds all our stuff mainly now. I, I just think the opportunities are absolutely just open there to the creative mind and the innovative mind to transform our cities. I like what Melbourne's done a lot. You know, they have gradually cutting the traffic out. It's very subtle. A four-lane road has become a single lane each way and a tram down the middle. And the cars don't get in there anymore. Bicycles do, people do. Widen footpaths slightly, add more trees, put more seats, calm the traffic, and you can turn cities into beautiful places. I like talking about Rotterdam because it's a port, and they're turning that port into a recreational space. And it's a filthy, dirty, rusty ships, filthy bilge, like most ports are, even if they hide it, and they are becoming places of recreation near water and interest. It's, it can all be transformed, but we're also going to have to know where we're going to put our money to make it happen. Are you aware, Danny, that in Italy, I think it's Domino's Pizza, has closed down? I did not know that. Right. Well, they've closed down right through Italy because people didn't like the pre-made industrial um, pizzas that were frozen, then delivered and heated, and Domino's has pulled out of. And I think McDonald's pulled out of India because the Indians decided they liked their own food better. All it takes is for people to start making a decision about what they want and where they want it. And the other thing is to trust the swarm movements me Too, Black Lives Matter, these sorts of things where it passes through the community quickly and well, probably through IT, and then people start saying, not me. We've got it in divesting money, Danny. We've got people who are just saying to the banks, we won't, we're not having you divest, investing in coal anymore. I'm leaving. 
And all you need to do is, all you need to do is that what we need are these swarm movements, as have happened in India and Italy, to either leave what we want or create what we want. So it's a matter of us putting our, you know, our money where our hearts and our beliefs are. But it's also turning around the capitalist system a bit. Yeah, it's a pretty big ship to turn around. But I, what I love about what you're saying is that you do give us all some power. You see that we all have some power in the choices that we make every day. I mean, what about um, our attitudes? You know, what about like what sort of energy or intention could I bring next time I walk out of my door? What are some 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 things that I could do or think about differently? Well, you walk out the door and, and you'll take your earphones out <laughs> and your phone, put it in your pocket and you'll look and you look at which buildings are getting the sun and what the reflections are like and whether there are any trees and is there any life in it and has some gorilla person planted something at the bottom of the tree and you look at the businesses and see those that you think are really worth supporting and the little one you didn't notice in the corner that does special something teas. And you will put your attention and your awareness onto the environment right across the spectrum, not only in food, but in everything. And from that, you'll quite likely come home either saying, oh, my God, that's amazing, or wow, that's interesting, or I'm going to have to get rid of that, <laughs> even if it takes a while, um, or I'm never going to that place again. So it's something to do with making the visible conscious and making it understood through a lens of quality and for what makes a good society for us and the people who follow us. I think we have to have an intergenerational lens here as well. Yeah, for sure. Like that we're all building a legacy of some sort. We are, Danny. I want I would hate to be someone who said, Why did you let all this happen? So I also <laughs> I hope that you will allow people to listen to this podcast and have their earphones in at some time. Um it's gotta be about balance, doesn't it? Sometimes. Sometimes we need extreme. Mm. I mean if you if you really cared about something very, very much and you wanted to act on that, for example, if you're really against investment in coal in a very big way and you knew what was happening, then I think that could drive you to maybe to a level that you're not quite comfortable at, but your conscience and everything in you says this is horrific and destroying things. And most of us have something at which the spark is lit. And that's where I think we have to manage it for the common good. Yeah. Yeah. And together we can all push things forward. Yeah. And talk to people and, and sort of ask them what they care about rather than where they bought the handbag or the shoes or the new computer. Um, become disenchanted with consumerism and get far more interested in being perhaps a restorer, see, see ourselves as restorers rather than consumers, and then start looking at probably quite a lot of stuff as superfluous and junk and causing problems. Yeah. And I think we need to be talking to companies. We want to see more companies. I'm not talking about being green because that can end up green. We want to see more companies and businesses being ethical. Everyone loves to say that group, 
that I work with, whether it's Kathmandu or someone else, do this with their money. You know, Bendigo Bank puts half their profits every year back into the local community. This bank does that. You know, Australia Bank does something else. We love to be able to say that what we support is supporting a, a much better and cleaner world with less rubbish. So I think we have to get a bit of a handle on our money at the same time because that whether we withdraw and boycott or whether we actually support and when we talk about it, it's not done on we talk about sex and politics more more easily than money, but I think we need to have money talks with people. <laughs> what do you spend your money on? You know, have you got 58 pairs of shoes or socks or shirts or handbags? You know, what, what's happening there? Do you really want a bigger car? Do you really want high tech? You know, let's be Buddhist. You know, wants evaporate after a couple of days. You just look at it and the want goes away. If it's a really big need, it will stay. You know, there are lovely little things we can educate ourselves with to be free because all these things are actually like having egg lines. How about egg lines? Let's talk about leg irons. You know, we're actually in a trap and that being able to think your way beyond it is both mental freedom and cleanliness and also better for the future. Wow, it's really powerful stuff. Um, Ro, I'd like to finish by asking you about food that you love. Um, do you have a meal that you return to, a piece of produce that you look forward to as the seasons turn? Um, what's something that you really enjoy eating? I adore salads. It's not really a meal for most people. I really love salads and I love the little black purple potatoes I grow in my garden. I think they're actually New Zealand potato, but I love them. And I'm never happier than cleaning up bowls and bowls of salad. It, I, I barely cook. I do some vegetables, but not many. But it's the salads that get me and soups and a good bread. I'm pretty simple, you know, because in a way I'm interested in food, but I'm not a food aficionado. Um, I just love the stuff. If it's a really good bread, a good soup and a good salad, I think, you know, you could leave me on that for the rest of my life. And I've had lots of different foods and I enjoy French and Italian and all those. I don't enjoy Afghan and I don't, don't enjoy lots of places, but that 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 would be me. But then in my salad, it's half a fruit salad. So I'll grate some apple and add an orange and, you know, add some fruit as well. So. Yeah, that, that's me. And, and a really lovely dressing, a really good dressing. I like wine vinegar, red wine vinegar. Um, but I'm not really very much of a food buff in the end. The growing of it is me. The end product, well, sometimes I'll tell you a secret, Danny. Is a secret? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's a podcast, yeah, just between us. Well, I have cooked food that's been inedible because I'm a very bad cook. So I've had to feed it to the chickens or something because I'm such a bad cook. So I've settled on what I can do and what I love, which is that level, which is varied and interesting, and I can eat it all year. Love it. Well, from one salad lover to another, um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and philosophy on the podcast today. Um, I know we're gonna, we've got to do a lot more of taking our headphones out, but I am really glad some people will put the headphones in and 
start to think about things differently through um, through your words today. Thanks so much, Ro, for being with us. And thank you, Danny, and all your technicians behind there. And thank you for making these sorts of podcasts available to people. I know they're valuable. And the people who listen to them will be, I reckon, making a change. Thanks again. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.